I'm Damon Ako, the Almeyer Family Head of School at Parish Episcopal School. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. With our podcast season wrapping up this month, the question loomed how best to conclude our exploration of the season-long theme together. Having explored in the fall the elements that cohere and divide groups and what deep listening and civil dialogue entail, you'll recall we shifted our course in the second half of the podcast season to consider the opportunities and gifts associated with coming together to play and to create. I've so enjoyed the conversations to date with guests from outside the parish gates and the talented students and professionals who comprise our community. But how might I close the loop on our thinking? My prayers were answered in April when parish board member Alex Sharma suggested I connect with this episode's guest, Claire Hadar. Alex and his wife, Gowrie, had come to know and work with Claire through a variety of nonprofit boards, and Alex believed Claire and I would enjoy our conversation. Alex could not have been more correct. Claire's work as a technology entrepreneur and futurist inspired my thinking about how we might craft a final conversation on this season's theme of Together. Specifically, Claire's interest in and expertise around the future of work allows us to ponder what gathering in the days after the pandemic may look and feel like, not just in the workplace, but in our communities and schools as well. She is the co-founder and CEO of two companies that help other companies leverage technology to evaluate efficiency and rethink their workplaces. Claire is also a mom with little ones at Lamplighter School here in Dallas and an avid outdoors woman. Enjoy this conversation with Claire Hadar. Well, we've made it to May, friends, with the From My Angle podcast. So glad to have you here and to be finishing what's been such a fun season of looking at this word together. We've gone inside parish and outside parish to talk about what brings groups together, what tears groups apart, how groups uh, forgive and find grace. And then this spring, often with our parish community members, thinking about how we come together and to play and create. But I was, I'll admit it, perhaps the end of your fatigue, I was a little bit perplexed as to how I would conclude this season of Together. And I was scratching my head when pod, uh, when our board member who was asking about the podcast uh, suggested a friend of his. And I am so grateful to Alex Sharma, his wife, Gowrie, for pointing me in the direction of today's guest, Claire Hadar. She's a futurist. And what better way to think about this concept of Together than to think about What's together going to look like post-pandemic? So, Claire, we are so excited to have you. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast, our final guest of the season. Dave, thank you so much. It is, it's honestly, it's an honor uh, to be closing out the season with you guys. And the word together is a very loaded word in the year that we're living through right now. <laughs> so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I think we're going to have some good debate and discussion back and forth. There is no question as a, a tech entrepreneur, as a futurist, uh, especially looking at the area of the workplace, Claire will have much to share with us. But before we do that, Claire, I like the guests to come on and really just tell us about how their identity came to be, right? And so there are usually pivot moments, I call them in our lives and our journeys, their people or their experiences. They're so formative that when we look at ourselves in this present moment, we say, those are the two or three big reasons that I am, how I identify myself when I introduce myself to someone. So however it is that you introduce yourself, 
to a group. You're a mother, you're an entrepreneur, you're a mountain biker. What points of influence brought you to where you are today? I think, Dave, you know, thanks for asking that. As you say, it definitely is rooted in like some pretty pivotal moments in one's life. So I was raised the child of an entrepreneur and promised myself that I would never be one myself because I lived through the highs and lows of being a child of an entrepreneur. And then um, I was in my second year of college uh, doing a degree, a, a double major in business and psychology. And uh, my dad tragically died in a car accident very, oh. very unexpectedly. Oh. And so I went from being a college student to having to take over his business literally in the space of like 24 hours. And so here I am studying, planning to never, ever be a business owner. And I'm literally thrown into the deep end of being one. And very interestingly, my dad, so this was kind of like the early 2000s when this happened. And if you recall, like that very early set of like 2000 to kind of 2005, cloud was just emerging as a, a technology. People were still kind of going like, what is the cloud? Like, how do you work in the cloud and things like that? And my dad had a publishing business. And so it was, it was one of those, you either choose to go and digitalize this business or it's not going to survive. And so I actually chose to wind down the business. And yet the interesting thing is that the you, being thrown into business, but, having, but choosing to wind the business down is a very interesting way to get into business because you're doing things backwards. <laughs> They talk about pivotal moments, you know, you kind of get to deconstruct something and see it from a very different angle. And that's me. It kind of changed what I chose to major in. It, it changed the trajectory that I chose for my postgrad. It, it changed everything. And I am an entrepreneur today because of that car accident. And I'm doing uh -huh. what I'm doing today because of that. So yeah, it, it was pivotal. It was defining, but it that kind of set my entire career on a path where everything that I've touched from a work perspective has been around optimizing humans and systems specifically at very large scale and how that impacts behavior. Yeah. I'm so sorry that your pivotal moment was, was one of loss and sorrow, but clearly you've, you've made the best of it. And there are so many directions I could have gone off that question, but we have other things to chat about, but I, but I am, I am interested in this this whole idea of a publishing business and then you essentially coexisted running the business and doing school or did you leave school for a time to essentially take no, care of the business no so i actually chose to carry on doing a full-time degree yeah. a double major and run the business at the same time so i was sleeping very little i remember going to bed at about 12 1 in the morning waking up at about five again in the morning you know and just that was pretty much my life for like three years until I finished my undergrad and, and my, only other, business down. my only other had to ask question on that, on that one element of your, of your journey is yeah. would your dad have agreed with you winding down the business? Like, was he moving in that direction or was he in to, to, to go with it for as long as it, as it took? No, he would have absolutely been uh. in. Yeah. He would have, because it was either. So yes, the interesting thing, I come from South Africa and mm -hmm. You know, America has always been the leader, the global leader in technology. So when cloud was emerging in the U.S. in the early 2000s and, in, and you know, a few years later in Europe, like Africa was still 10 years behind that, you know. And so digitalizing a business in a country that has to compete at a global level 
it's, it's just, you know what I mean? It's just like the resource yeah. not there. It doesn't make sense to us. It, it wasn't yeah. going to work. So interesting, uh, interesting how lives, uh, all of our lives have these moments of, of, uh, of great um, uh, choice to make. And then, you know, how we make uh, our decisions from there will often shape you know, our future, not just in the short term, but in the, in the long term. So yeah. now today, I, I know there have mm. been businesses between that one you took over at your father's passing and where you are today with Winder, but you, you yeah. run this company. And so tell us a little bit about its mission and how you arc into it and achieve it as a company. So the way you should think about this is essentially a digital production line. So major, major companies, we work with very large corporates, you know, and businesses right around the world come to us when they want to change how they work, okay? And so it may be as small as a single department that they want to disrupt, or it may be across the entire company where they want to disrupt it. And the reason why I'm saying we're the digital production line is because we have a suite of products that essentially extract data out of all of these different applications that people work in. So think about things, Microsoft, Slack, Zoom, all of these tools that make up our working world and our working life right now. And we extract that data, we show the company what their data is telling them, the story of their, their company and how they're working. And then using that data, we help them to basically start optimizing and recreating a better version of themselves. So it's really exciting work. It's a consult. It sounds like a. It sounds like a, a productivity consultancy. But do you then also have software on the back end that so, that provides solution to the issues that you find where a company is yeah. not optimizing either human or machine performance? Yes, it's exactly that. So we've got our own, you know, product which does that data analysis for these companies, but then we also have partnerships, you know, with various different organizations that we can come in and help them to, you know, rebuild their world of work inside the organization. So what is the competitive space like for Winder there? Who else does this? Do big consultancies like the, the big consultancies like BCG and others come in and do productivity type consultancy? Or are there other tech consultancies in the space like Salesforce or others? Like who else is in the who else is in the space competing with you? So there's two different ways to look at it. So definitely, if you look at like Deloitte, they've got a human capital management practice, you know, um, PwC have their organization and human transformation practices, you know, they all have a variant of that. So these large consulting organizations definitely do focus on it, you know, Bain, all of them, you mentioned BCG, all of them do it. Uh, where we're very specialized is that a lot of that consulting work is strategic and it's technological, but it's very seldom focused on the actual human behavior. And so we actually partner with the likes of PwC and these type of organizations to come in and very much focus on that human layer. So as an organization, we're known for our skill sets and our speciality around enabling the human inside this complex environment of systems and processes and everything to actually work better and to accelerate and to excel, you know, in terms of that. So we actually, you know, so it's competitive, but it's also very complementary because we work with those type of companies. And then also um, naturally there's technology companies that specialize in this type of work, you know, so Workfront, Workday, um, you know, Reich, uh, Asana, Trello, all of those, 
do work management technologies. They build them, deploy them, and we're partners with them as well. Yeah, it's like you get to an, almost a bespoke level, like just a higher level of, of personalization or customization for your for your clients, it sounds like. Yeah. And, and you would come into like my workplace and say, um, here is how Dave individually works efficiently or does not. And here is how Dave's team works efficiently or does not. And here's how this technology system is leveraged well or not well, right? These are all the types yeah. of questions that you would be investigating. That's all of the type yeah, of stuff that we really, do. Yeah. Really yeah. So you spend and have spent so much time on this concept of um, work in the oh. present and then where work is going, which we'll get to in a second. But I wanted to sort of elevate back to just take your, your entrepreneur futurist mindset to this concept of uh, really what's going to happen in human relationships be they in or outside the workplace. So this last 14 months, we've been living and working in the pandemic. When you think about the most significant impact on how we think about human relationships, be they in or outside of work, like how do you, how do you categorize or summarize that the pandemic's impact on how human relationships um, have operated? I think the most brutal answer, and it's, it's not a pretty answer, but it is the most brutally honest answer that I can give, is that we've become slaves to the technologies that are driving our new connections. So we've literally been taken away from in-person spaces and we've been forced to engage in technology. So whether that's Zoom or Instagram, or TikTok or Facebook or email or you know whatever it is that we've migrated to as the dominant factor and the reason why i'm using the word slave is because and this is this is really the core of of the work that we do with organizations as well and why this is such an important thing to understand is that when you're building a house when you're building a space okay you're very deliberate and intentional about how you're designing it. So you're thinking through, what am I going to do in the living room? What am I going to do in the kitchen? What am I going to do Yeah, We don't approach technology in the same way. We just use it. We just consume it. And so we don't see work or family time any longer as a thing, a construct that needs to be designed to achieve certain outcomes. And so where humanity is going to have to shift to is we've kind of like just because of a global mass pandemic have been forced into a bunch of technologies they're good and bad all bundled in there all kind of like jumbling around right now and what we're naturally going to do because we're not going to be able to sustain the pace is we're going to have to take a step back and go are these optimally designed for the outcomes i'm trying to drive does that make sense Completely. I think anybody who sat on a Zoom, you know, call in those first weeks where it was like, oh, this is a great way to get together with friends when we're locked down and we'll have the Friday cocktail and it really is pretty good. And then wearied of it within three weeks. It's because there's limitations to the technology. We've seen it in our personal life in that example and in our work life where you just can't get some of the functionality yeah. to work the way you wish it will. So you see technology really arcing and evolving forward based on the user feedback they're going to get from this last 14 months. But at root, what still happened is in this last 14 months, we've been disconnected from each other and basically forced to use technology at whatever level of a service it would provide to us. Like Exactly. Yeah, yeah. it is what it is. And that's why and I'm saying it's kind of all just bundled up yeah. at the moment. So, so let me be clear. 
I, I think it would be naive of us to think that we're going to go back to what we were in before. We're not going to go back to that. I genuinely don't believe that. And like one of the messages that I'm giving very strongly to companies right now when I'm engaging with executive teams and engaging with leadership teams is there is no such thing as blended. Like you're either positioned and designed to be a virtual first company or you're positioned and designed to be an in-person company. And the same applies to a school environment. Like we have a lot of tertiary institutions and universities that we work with as customers. And the same message applies to them. You, it's it's kind of like saying, you know, you're a capitalist or you're a socialist. It's like, those are two fundamentally different paradigms. They can't coexist at the same time. It's like building a house in the Antarctic versus building a house in a very, very hot desert. It's, they're fundamentally different. And so you have to decide what that modus operandi is gonna be that you're going to build towards and design around. And then you can incorporate the rest into it, but you still have to be true to that core. Yeah, and that's, that's where we're going to go. That's the whole process that I think schools, families, churches, everything that makes up community right now is going to go through that right now. And figure out which side of that binary they fall on. You know, we're yes. either going to do virtual religious services or in-person religious services. Yeah, yeah, but there are some churches, for example, that will continue to live stream services. So that's probably different than they, what they used to do. Whereas at a school like ours, we're going to be very happy to get rid of teaching simultaneously the in-person audience and the virtual audience. That's where I buy into that incompatibility. You know, yeah. um, I definitely can see it in work where, you know, having half your team on site and the other half virtual is going to be really difficult for managers mm. and, and teams to, to continue to do yeah. together. How about like... Well, I was just wondering in the area of like purely like fan, like family and friends, like as we reemerge and this and this deep, the sort of disequilibrium of the pandemic and the disconnection starts to recede and we're seeing it now a little bit, right? Mm. And we're coming back together and I'm noticing, you know, the awkwardness and um, some of the tentativeness with how to start re-engaging and some of it is around protocols and policies that are still unclear. Do I wear my mask mm. at this place or not? Like there's some mm. of that, but people have been sheltered down for a while or just meeting like you and I are meeting now. And all of a sudden those social skills and graces of just returning to human energy and interaction proximate um, are a little, um, they're just, a, they're just a little shocking to the system. Right? It's like a mm. cold, cold water in your face. Mm. Like, how do you see even on a human relationship side, family and friends coming back together that it might be different and stay different? Do you see any, or you think it's just at some point going to revolve back into how it used to be? I think I, I definitely don't think it's going to go back to how it, it was. I, I definitely don't think it's going to be that. I think a good analogy will be just the parenting life cycle that you go through. You know, you're, day one, you have an infant and before you know it, you're at year two and you're dealing with a toddler. And before you know it, you're dealing with a teenager and you never ever go back to being an infant, but it's still your child. And I think that's very real. Yeah. It's still your family, but it's, there's definitely a pre pandemic family and there's a post pandemic family because it, you know, there, there's so many things that people underestimate how, 
things solidify in a very short space of time. 14 months is short, but it's also very, very long. It's long enough for things to become ingrained in deeply enough in people. So, you know, students have tasted what it feels like to not be tethered to a physical desk and a physical classroom. And it's frustrating in some regards, particularly for those who have had really bad internet connections, but there's a ton of freedom that comes with it, okay? Parents will never ever be able to approach schooling in the same way again with students who have tasted that, you know? And not being bound to the usual Friday night dinner that I'm compulsorily having to go to because this was family tradition all the time. I've tasted 14 months of not having to do that. So you can't force me to go back into that because you may try to, but it's not going to be good because the repercussions aren't going to be good. And so families are definitely going to have to shake out and find that new norm. But I think what has also happened during this period is that people have realized what's really important to them. And so I think families and particularly the leaders within families, whether that be the mother, the father, the grandparents, that dominant leader in the family is definitely actually going to have to take a step back and go, what are the preferences that have emerged in this family over this period? How have we evolved as a family, as a student body, you know, as, as a leadership team, as a company? And taking cue from those preferences that have emerged and building a new reality from that. It, it's going to take human observation. It's going to take behavior observation and then very deliberate building of a new reality. What's really be clear, successful. yeah, what's really clear from these um, early sort of early stage post-pandemic engagements that I've been a part of is uh, the energy and um, release of, of longing that was in place to be mm. back. Like it just feels good to be in a room of many folks with whom you've had a network, either soft ties or, or strong ties just feels good to be back in those rooms and maybe people will overconsume on that you know with their family and friends when they get back and then as you're maybe suggesting recalibrate like i think that's going to be interesting is that when the floodgates open and the cdc says you can gather inside no masks we're normal mm. whatever it is that people um have these sort of uh, moments of rushing back and and overdoing coming back together before they recede to these new the kind of new habits or maybe more to your thesis um, they come back into it gently saying you know look I, I like some things about how the pandemic worked for me my family my workplace um, so I'm not going to go full back to mm. the type of engagement um, that we that we saw before it's just an interesting listening question I mean a little more on the work side because um, you, you've clearly said that um, companies are going to have to come back. What do we, what do we, where are we as a company pre-pandemic, pandemic experience, new reality, uh, we're, we're binary, we're either a virtual workplace or we're not a workplace uh, that's, that's virtual or a human-based mm. workplace. As you look to the future of work, you know, in terms of other changes that might architect because of the pandemic, what are, are there any others that you and other futurists in the workspace are saying uh, how work is going to look differently? In the, oh. in the post-pandemic? I think I'd love to talk yeah, about some of the things that are really exciting me that I'm starting to see emerge. So <clears throat> if you look at, at HR, um, the human resource function, 
it's very much, it's tried, it's fought for many years to be strategic in its role, but it's across the board, like it's very rarely that it's actually been able to get that right. It's become a very administrative function. It's the function that processes payroll, processes this. And for the first time ever in history, it is being forced to be strategic because the executive leadership doesn't have any other place to turn to except that or to higher end. And so they're turning to chief people officers and they're saying, deal with this. Like we have this whole new area in the business, which is virtual work, remote work, new ways of working, future of work. And we need to figure this out. Like this actually needs thought and design and, you know, strategy behind it before it gets implemented. And so that's really exciting to me because not only does it put people front and center at a strategic level and not just see them as something administratively that has to get handled, but it actually opens a ton of doors for future careers, you know? So like remote work officer, head of remote, is jobs that have just all of a sudden in the last 14 months become a thing. They're titles that are being hired into companies, you for know? The sectors, for the sectors of companies that will be the virtual sectors as opposed yes. to the company components that have to work face-to-face. Well, even the companies that are choosing to go predominantly in person, they realize that they're still going to have to offer this virtual component to how they work, even if they've chosen their primary mode. And so they need somebody to be overseeing this because Mm -hmm. it's no longer acceptable. And the same applies to the school environment. It's no longer acceptable to just pull somebody in on a laptop when everybody else is sitting around the table. It's a suboptimal experience and people aren't going to accept it anymore, you know? And so this, like, it opens up a whole lot of career possibilities that are really focused on humans and the performance of humans and ensuring that humans excel and thrive in their work and school environments. And that's really exciting to me that that's happening. And there's a big, big area of development in that. Yeah, area that's pretty right fascinating. Now. And the whole notion of the strategic HR function, I wonder too, if it has a, a lot to, um, a lot to relate to the bounce back effect post pandemic of, of uh, how important belonging and connection is. And mm. so HR function will also um, look at um, policy and team building and the components of um, creating community because we all, we lost it for a time and we realized how valuable it is. So yeah. that will put more emphasis in our organizations on um, human relationship and um, being together, you know, just mm. know just another topic you might have listened to you. You know, I think, Dave, I mean, I've only had a few minutes of a conversation with you before we got onto this, and I haven't had the opportunity to hear from you why you chose the word together. Mm -hmm. But it's a very apt word for the year that we've just been in. And I think it's because there was a sense of loss around togetherness, but in this, at the same time, there was a huge sense of togetherness because we were fighting so many different types of battles on so many different levels where we had to do things together in a way that we had never done before. And I think it is a perfect word that you chose for the year. And I would say that that is where, whether you're a teacher in a school, whether you're a father or a mother in a family situation, it doesn't like whatever leadership position you're in right now, I think you almost have to embed that mentality of together in that 
we're back at the beginning. We're back at a drawing board and we shouldn't be thinking it's just going to go back to normal or it's just going to figure itself out. No, we're literally standing in front of a blank canvas and it's the leader's role, not just the big leaders, not just the visible leaders, the invisible leaders, the people who are actually leaders but aren't necessarily recognized as that. It's those leaders' roles to paint that canvas and to, to redefine what together is going to be. Yeah, Parrish's word focuses, we already know next year, are going to move from together to reconnect and reset. And this is around this notion in the fall of just spending time connecting people to people and people to this place again. And as you were suggesting earlier, um, and, and articulating and extolling the virtues that we share in common, that we missed, that we want to make sure we illuminate and, and cherish, and then mm. resetting in the second half of next year, our collective community vision on opportunities and, uh, uh, and aspirations for the future under the premise that we were doing some cool things pre-pandemic that we want to pick back up on, but we've learned some things during the pandemic. And to your earlier point about that synthesis, right? Like we mm. have to try to figure out how those come together and present a new template for a future direction together. So that's where we're going to go. And your point on why I selected together was pretty spot on. I knew back in August last year, that staying together would be hard and different mm -hmm. and that we would only be able to stay together if we committed to working together in whatever form it took. Right. So you do, you had to, yeah. you, had, you know, make that commitment to one another. Mm -hmm. This whole idea of innovation to my point about resetting visions is, is of interest to me post pandemic. So as we come back together, you know, especially in the world of work and school, there's been this, rapid acceleration of innovation you know schools overnight virtualized their programs for example new businesses have sprung up in different spaces to serve the needs of consumers for example in the restaurant industry right to, to just to survive themselves to leverage uh, takeout and other uh, platforms to, to keep themselves going so this idea of um does our do we return to a pace of similarly vibrant and rapid innovation or recede back, you know, to a mindset uh, because of our fatigue, because of our desire to connect at the human level, where innovation actually slows for a bit. So, for example, in my sector education, I told you in an earlier call, like I actually am of the mindset that our constituent wants nothing more to do with innovation and rapid change. They want a reconnection to school kind of as they once knew it really based fundamentally on human relationship, not a whole lot of computer, not a whole lot of new time uh, modules and thoughts about how to do education differently, but really how we used to do it. And that at least for a time, that's going to be the prevailing mindset in my sector of education. As you look at the broader kind of landscape of work, what's your forecast for innovation um, coming out of the pandemic? I think, Dave, we, we really need to give ourselves a period of grace, if I could call it that. The pandemic has been a huge, huge trauma to the entire globe. And we're not on the other side of that trauma. That trauma is still happening right now. And I think America as a whole is going to have to be very sensitive to this because we're going to emerge out of it quicker than any other nation in the world. And we're going to have to remain sensitive to the point that the rest of the world are a few, like literally years behind us on this. And when a massive trauma like that happens, you go through grief and the whole world is going through that cycle right now. And it's happening at a global level, but it's also happening at a very human micro level. 
at an individual family level where that grief cycle of absolute shock and then denial and then acceptance and then the regrowth. And that actually aligns perfectly with what you've just said about innovation. Innovation will slow down because if you look at how we reacted in 2020, with the exception of some of like the medical, like the Pfizer's, the Moderna's that have to jump into immediate action and regeneration to develop solutions, the great majority of industries went into shock and just stood still and said, we're going to ride this out and see where this goes. And then this year, if you look at the, the majority of the behavior that's emerging, it's very much denial. It's like, no, we will go back to the way things were. We just have to fight forward and we'll get back to that. And by the end of this year, once people have actually tested getting back together again, they're going to start, they're going to see, they're going to realize, they're going to have those moments of recognition where they're like, it can't be the same again. And then the growth starts happening again. So I'm extremely hopeful. I'm, I'm not worried about what's happening right now. It's a really important phase of dealing with trauma where people need to go through that grieving cycle. And this is almost what I would call the resting phase. You know, the shock and the denial is important. It's kind of like it calms the nervous system down. And then the regeneration and the regrowth will start happening in earnest as of next year. So I think we're going to have to go through a school year. So September through to May um, of trying to go back to normal, the denial phase. And then the, you know, 2022-23 school year, we're going to see some very interesting things emerging. I'm kind of right there with you. I'm like 24 months, this whole reconnect and then reset deal is like mm. I think it's a six to 12 months hard on the reconnect, start the reset in the middle of that reconnecting. But then that resetting from January of, you know, really January of 2022, almost through the 2022-23 school year is not about new innovation. It's about aligning behind shared vision. Like it's about collapsing the lessons learned pre-pandemic and pandemic. Mm. And then, you know, so that's 24 months of, you know, recovery from trauma. I appreciate your use of word. Mm -hmm. um, and again, resetting, like resetting vision. And that seems like a long time in the world of innovation, right? <laughs> I mean, they just cranked out a vaccine in, you know, basically <laughs> two weeks, you know, <laughs> like, it, so it's yeah. slow, but we have to remember, again, I think I appreciate your sensitivity to the global mindset, but also our own communities um, where there's fatigue in those that have mm. to execute change and innovation. And there's innovation anxiety to a degree on those that like our students and parents that have experienced it and yeah. are, you know, just not ready to tolerate anymore. So just really compelling and interesting questions for leaders of organizations in all sectors as to, you know, how you pace this work in your community exactly. based on your instinct as to where they are psychologically, um, as you suggest, this is a lot about the psychology of those of us that experienced the pandemic coming out. It'd be interesting to see. I mean, as we close, let's like pull the lens way back because, you know, you can do this too. And I'm sure this is where a lot of your thinking with your team at Winder is as well. And so, you know, you've got really young kids, our graduating, our, our youngest pre-K three kids here will graduate in 2035 you know, yeah. so then presume that they go to a four-year college and my listeners and others know that I'm, you know, very uh, bearish on that being the reality for kids in that generation. There will be a good portion of them, I think, that don't and new models mm -hmm. out offer them the opportunity to do it differently. But let's just suggest that the present paradigm stick. Okay. Graduate, okay. From college, graduate from college around 2039, 
And, you know, our three-year-olds today are knocking on the door of an employer in 2040 and they get hired. Man, it's a long time from now, right? So like, what's the workplace of 2040 look like in the mind of a futurist like you? Um, broad, broad paintbrush descriptions of some of the things you think will be out there. I think we will, so I'm going to, I'm going to break it up into three categories because as an organization, we've actually done really deep research around this. So we like, we've really dug into this topic. So I'm going to break it up into three, three areas. The first area is what I would call like the strategic macro level. Okay. I, we will 100% be living and working alongside bots. Um, and those bots will not necessarily be like an actual robot that's physically standing next to us, but it will, the majority of it will be micro bots that are living inside systems that we're working in, you know? So like just this application that we're doing this, having this conversation on Zoom has already got like a whole lot of bots working away in it, you know what I mean? And that will just increase. And so what you're definitely gonna see at that macro level is you're gonna see a very clear differentiator between human skill sets and robotic skill sets, okay? So humans are very quickly going to start getting very frustrated because they're going to have the means to outsource and get rid of the stuff that they don't enjoy doing, okay? So you're going to, that's very clearly going to happen. Then at an actual, like what I would say, like grassroots, like down in the weeds level, okay, of like jobs and those type of things, there's going to be a very big move towards and like we're already there where it's all knowledge work, but people's knowledge, people's creativity, their ability to solve problems is going to be the main factor. And so what I see emerging now and what I see becoming the dominant way of working in the future is like right now you're graduating from college with an accounting degree you most likely start your career as an accountant and then kind of like go in like one or four different variants. You know what I mean? So you may not die being an accountant, but there's going to be some form of a thread that involves numbers. Okay. And that's pretty much the way careers are today. It's still the minority of people that make like complete and total 180 degree career turns. I think that's going to be, it's going to flip on its head. And so what you're going to find is, is that people are going to be employed for their ability to solve problems. And so we're actually going to start working in what I would call SWAT team styles. So very large companies, small companies are going to go, this is what my customer needs me to solve right now. Who are the best brains that I can get from all over the world onto this problem right now? And they're going to get those brands to collaborate. They're going to come together like a SWAT team, solve that problem, and then move on to the next one. So companies are not going to be hiring for a long-term skill set. They're not going to hire an engineer and expect him to work there as an engineer for five years. Um, they, it, it's going to become this like very clear, not just project-based work, but actual creating a solution and pushing a solution out and then moving on to the next thing. And... I think that's very, like, you're starting to see that emerge now, and I think it's going to become the norm. And then the next thing at an individual level is that we're going to see a very clear move away from, like, specific degrees that are related to a very specialist area of work. So, like, for example, engineering, or maths, or something like that, and more broadly around broad life skills, creativity, problem solving critical thinking, um, design, the, those type of skill sets that are broad, 
in their subject matter, but very specific in their application is where we're going to see education moving towards. Or not, right? Because this is the whole thing. We've just talked about this retardant to innovation and how long that takes and how much our innovation anxious parents really are so stuck on the just the right now anachronistic model of how school should work which is anything other than what David Epstein in his book range talks about wicked problems, right? Like yeah. our, school, our school should be filled, not with linear uh, math classes where everybody the same, mm. same pace, but our, our students really being given the very type of wicked problems that you're suggesting they'll be confronting in the workplace to hone their skills, not the mm. amount of content they possess. And I'm just here to tell you, as a school that spent a lot of time trying to reimagine, that's our word around here, how school works. Um, I don't know when the consumer uh, psychology and awareness is going to catch up to allow the type of innovation that needs to happen in schools to happen to really prepare kids for the world that you're describing. It's just did it mean interesting tension because change in mm. academia and, and, uh, acad and, and educational institutions is clearly lagging well behind the median of in innovation in almost mm. every sector. So yeah. uh, I think what's going to drive it is actually not going to be the consumer that you're talking about. It's not going to be the grandparent, the parent, because there are such fixed mindsets around what schools should be and what it should look like. I think it's going to be driven by business. Because, yeah, and, it, and the reason why I'm saying that is because if you, I mean, between my husband and I, there's, you know, there's four different companies that are being run and we're already facing that problem right now. We're, we're seeing that the graduates that are coming out and these very, very tenured experienced people that are coming out don't have that ability to just like look at something broadly, put all of their life skills together and solve a problem. And so we're like, like, how do we just bypass a, a, a graduate? Like, how do we just like go straight to like a school child who still has the ability to have their brain melded into a different way of thinking? And how do we, and like, literally, I'm not joking with you, like just three days ago, my husband and I were sitting brainstorming how we could potentially start a new type of university where people go straight into a job, but the sure. job is around solving problems, not learning some random subject matter. Yeah. And we're not the only ones who are thinking about it because like this is a critical, critical workforce issue. Yeah. Like, we can't find the skills we need. Yeah. And I'm starting to rant right now because this is like, this is an issue. Hey, you and I need a whole nother hour podcast, my friend, to, to get into educational innovation or not. And that's why to a certain degree, I poked the bear on the question of what the workplace will look like come 2040, because I use this line all the time with, with prospective incoming pre-K parents about the type of school they want and our aspiration to be a school that prepares kids for that future in reality, which requires them to be tolerant with us trying to unpack and deconstruct uh, independent school education as we know it. But I would just suggest, yes, I think there's some reverse osmosis that will come from workplaces demanding it, but until higher ed yes, agreed. and lifts and lifts some of the parameters of acceptance that, that so constrict innovation at the pre-collegiate level and have so grabbed the mindset of our parents and kids in, in mm. this place of college preparatory independent school, there's a lot there that has to be um, that has to be deconstructed. Or I totally agree with you. Amazon, Google, other entrepreneurs—they're just going to create 
and disrupt. They are going to be the true disruptors. They're going to go into education and they're going to start offering uh, preparatory work that delivers young people to a profitable, uh, meaningful, purposeful life of work. And they're going to start opting out. They're going to start opting out of the grind of schools like mine. They're going to start opting out of expensive colleges. And a good portion of them, you know, 25, 30% maybe initially, are just going to start, they're going to start meandering around the, yeah. the standard course and just go that way. You know, exactly. I think that's yeah, it's, mm. uh, well, we could do this for quite a while, which I think is what Alex knew when he said, you should talk to Claire. <laughs> and I did talk to you. Thanks for capstoning uh, this season of, of thinking about together on the backside of the pandemic, which of course we all hope we get to. Uh, in the very near future. Yeah. We're going uh, to keep you in our network at Parish. We're grateful to know you and have you uh, potentially as a speaker source for our students and uh, various programs here down the line who are interested in entrepreneurship, love to. et cetera. So we'll look forward to it. Enjoy your summer. Honestly, love to. Thank you. You as well. And listen, just a last word from me. When I chatted to you, um, you know, one of the things that I asked you was, what is your guys' differentiator as a school? I loved, loved, loved the answer that you gave me. And the thing that really stood out for me was also the piece where you said, you guys look for the joy. Correct. And I think, I think that's what we need to hold on to as we're going through this, this grief cycle, as we're going through this period of change, let's keep focused on finding that joy because that joy is very often the beginning of the past to where we should be going. No and point. I think if we just listen to that joy, it will take us there. And joy comes from people getting back together in our construct yes. here at Parish, but it also comes from work that's engaging, right? And not mm. transactional and, and not vapid and not seemingly just getting done to, you know, reach the next level of quote unquote academic excellence in the school on top of some list somewhere to yeah. continue the ranting, by the way. All right. It's been that's fun. We'll Dave, so good talking to you. Thank you so much. Have a great summer. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this edition of the From My Angle podcast. Please share it with friends and colleagues in your network. It has been a pleasure spending this season of 20 episodes with you during this challenging and bewildering time in our lives. Our final episode of the season will be special and fun as we spend a few final minutes with co-host Amari Hayes on the cusp of his graduation. We'll reminisce a bit, talk some about what lies ahead for him, and introduce his successor, as the co-host of the From Our Angle editions of this podcast. We'll look forward to seeing you next time for the final From My Angle podcast of the 2020-21 season. <laughs>